All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Before I get into this week's episode, I wanted to invite you to take part in our upcoming Device Talks Tuesday. I'll be speaking with Heidi Dose of Google. Heidi brings a uh, a great story, both uh, her background as a competitive athlete, her early work in tech, but now the work she's doing with Google and med tech companies. Heidi's working with large med tech companies, small med tech companies, large provider networks like Mayo on helping them understand how data can be used in their devices. So uh, Heidi is a tech advocate. She's a patient advocate. This is a great conversation for anyone who has an eye toward the future. So go to devicetalks.com to register for the Device Talks Tuesday webinar. It's happening at 4 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. Again, go to Device Talks Tuesday. It's free and we'd love to have you as part of the conversation. Now, it's time to introduce and talk to my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device and Medical Design and Outsourcing. All right, well, TGI Friday, Chris Newmarker. How are you doing, man? Woohoo! It's Friday. Good to be here. Got through another week. We have been elbow deep in startups this week. Oh, yes. At, uh, at uh, Medical Design and Outsourcing and Mass Device. Tell our, uh, our loyal listeners what will be coming out from uh, our fine publications today. Oh yeah, it's going live today on uh, medical design outsourcing and uh, and mass device. It's also gonna be running in our July print edition, but yes, it should be posted by uh, the time you're listening to this podcast. And that's our uh, our roundup of uh, you know some of the most interesting uh, startups in the medical uh, device med tech space. And uh, just just a great job, Tom, that you, you, know, you did with our assistant editor, Sean. Uh, coming up with uh, you know this this list of startups and you know the nice thing too is I mean right now the industry you know there, there's a lot of challenges right now around the pandemic but um, I, I think this list is a really good indication that you know there's some you know really neat entrepreneurs doing some some really innovative work and I really would encourage anyone who you know wants to know where the innovation is going in the industry to you know go on our site you know check out this roundup. Yeah, we're grateful to our friends at uh, at Mass Medic and at uh, Medical Alley for uh, for su- submitting some some nominees. When we asked around, we certainly polled others in the industry. So, uh, yeah, MedTech Innovator was a big help. MedTech Innovator, absolutely, that's right. Well, this wasn't totally us sitting around going like like who do we think is interesting. We actually like talked to we talked to some of like the top leaders and said who who's getting your attention, which was great. Yeah, it is, and it's quite an innovative list. And we're going to talk to one of uh, our winners today, one of our, our selections today, uh, Circadia Health. Uh, Circadia Health got a uh, FDA approval. Actually, it was yesterday. So we actually had picked them prior to the FDA approving their C. 100 system that's a radar empowered system for uh for monitoring breathing basically to be able to to monitor hospital patients so i was pretty uh pretty happy that we had identified them as a hot startup just prior to the fda approval so we were on the ground floor baby very timely we got it now i'd like to take this opportunity to introduce ferris siddiqui the ceo of circadia health ferris welcome to the podcast thank you for having me tom 
Very happy to have you here. Uh, I, I told you off the air, I should have saved this announcement for on the air, but we had identified Circadia Health as uh, one of our startups to watch for medical design and outsourcing. So uh, we're very proud of ourselves here at uh, on the editorial team because yesterday on Thursday, and we're going to release the list today on Friday, uh, you had uh, some great news regarding the FDA giving clearance for your contactless respiration rate monitoring system. Uh, tell us a bit about Circadia and about your, uh, your contact, your, your C-RESP system. Sure. So it's the C100 system, um, which uses radar to uh, wirelessly look at your breathing pattern from up to four feet away. Uh, from that, we can pick up your respiratory rate, your patterns, and apply machine learning on top of that to be able to predict and prevent uh, respiratory complications. So in the instance of COVID-19, for example, you'll see a lot of uh, breathlessness as being one of the leading symptoms. We can pick that up in patients and uh, enable timely interventions effectively. So what is the radar actually measuring? Is it the movement of the body? Is it, is it detecting the strength of the breath? What is, what is it reading? So it's beaming radar to look at, uh, firstly, it, it, it calibrates, so it locks onto your chest wall. Mm -hmm. And so it's looking at the mechanical ventilation process effectively. So it's looking at the expansion and contraction of the chest wall. Uh, and then we apply signal processing to be able to then um, extract your, your breathing rate and other vital signs. And how is that information presented to the healthcare professionals who are monitoring? Is it a familiar sort of uh, interface or is it uh, something we'd see on, on TV when they're tracking radar of a, of a aircraft? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a dashboard which sits in the central nursing station. Okay. Um, you have multiple different uh, data from different devices displayed on that central nursing station. Uh, we have effectively what are different check engine lights from different devices that illuminate when there's a warning sign saying that the patient's respiratory rate is high and they require attention. We also have text alerts built into the whole uh, system, so you can effectively assign uh, a, f a phone number. To, or cell phone number to um, a device, and if that exceeds the threshold, it will it will send you an instant text message. Interesting. Okay. And what was the FDA process like? This is uh, I'm not sure if they've uh, if they've worked with this sort of device before uh, using this sort of uh, technology. So uh, it's been an interesting process. We actually applied in February. Um, typically, most products in our category take somewhere around I think six to eight months to get clearance. But given COVID-19, we put a request into the FDA to expedite our application. Um, coincidentally, they published guidance around the use of non-invasive and non-contact devices to support this pandemic. And so they took that into consideration. They, they conducted the review in 45 days when it typically takes them 60 to 90 days. And, and so within four months uh, from submission, we've had our 510K clearance. So it's been great. Um, the FDA has been extremely thorough. We've been back and forth with them several times, but it's great to see them um, support and, and effectively validate the fact that this life-saving technology can, can play a part in fighting this pandemic. And are there any conditions or limits or restrictions as to who can, what type of patient can be uh, monitored through your system, or is it open to anybody who's in a hospital anywhere or skilled nursing facility? So our indications for use are, are, are applied to all adult patients. Okay. So COVID-19, pneumonia, anything, anything, any respiratory disease? Any respiratory disease, um, as long as the patient is adult um, and in a facility, uh, that's what our 
uh, application falls under. And now with the re recent guidance, that what that allows us to do is actually roll out home monitoring projects as well. So we're working with people like UCLA. We're giving out um, devices that uh, to patients that test positive for COVID. They take the device home for monitoring. Excellent. And final question, what, uh, what's next? What will the commercial rollout look like? So we're targeting skilled nursing facility chains and hospital systems um, across the U.S. We've already started installing. Uh, we have partnerships with the Cleveland Clinic and UCLA. Um, uh, and um, effectively, we're doing initial pilot programs with 100, 200 devices and then scaling from there onwards. Uh, the, the key aspect is to be able to show that it's, it's very easy to use, which given that it's a non-contact and non-invasive device, we don't foresee any challenges uh, with regards to uptake of the device. Well, that's excellent. Well, I'm very uh, happy to hear this news and uh, very grateful, I think, to have this technology in play as, uh, as we continue to battle, battle COVID-19 and, of course, other respiratory illnesses. We definitely need an upgrade in this area. So congratulations to you and uh, thanks for joining us in the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. I, it's a really interesting story you have up about their, their approval. You know, it looks like FDA kind of um, you know, expedited this because, well, and unfortunately, we've got a you know, virus out there that causes a lot of respiratory distress, and this could this could help out. Speaking of the FDA and the pandemic, I also spoke with Steve Anderson, who's the CEO of Perceptus Medical, which is a company that's been around for a bit, not is not on our list, but certainly has been a company that's drawn a lot of attention for its Hummingbird uh, device to basically allow for the implanting of ear tubes outside of the OR. And what's interesting is Steve says that while they've been working at FDA approval for a long time, one of their major selling points and one of the things the FDA saw as a benefit of their technology was the fact that they can now take care of this procedure outside of the hospital, which is going to be more and more of a priority. I mean, I, um, I, have, I, I have three kids who are, who are four and under, and, you know, we've, we've been lucky. We, you know, we dodged needing ear tubes. We, we had some ear infections, but, uh, you know, I because of the age of our kids, we know a lot of parents with kids the same age. And, you know, I know that they're just, it can be a real pain. They can be tough on children. So, I mean, just, I mean, this technology, um, yeah, it sounds like it could, it could really make, make a difference and, and make, you know, ear tubes a lot easier for, for children and parents alike. So. Absolutely. My, my, and I, and as I reveal in the interview, my youngest actually had ear tubes and later on would have his adenoids and tonsils out. It always sounds mundane, but that that's a procedure and process you never really forget. And uh, neither does neither does the kid. Well, Steve Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. It was great to hear that uh, you got the FDA approval for the hummingbird. You and I have talked over a few years about uh, your you're working to get that done. So it's it's nice to see uh, you find some success in that regard. We could talk a little bit about the approval process, but before we get into anything, just tell our listeners a little bit about Perceptus. When were you founded and what is the Hummingbird? What, do, what does it do? So Perceptus was uh, started off as a skunk works project. As often as the case, my neighbor is a pediatric anesthesiologist and you know we were putting our heads together on this back in literally 08 or 09 as our, as our kids were swimming in the pool. The idea was, could we figure out a way to get children out from under general anesthetic in the operating room for pediatric tube procedures, which are the most common pediatric uh, procedure, surgical procedure in the United States. Over a million kids every year get ear tubes. And it wasn't the most profound thought that we could get these kids into, into the office. 
because of the fact that kids 12 to 15 years and above and adults um, who still have issues with ear tubes, it's less than the younger kids, we're already having them done in the office. And, and, and the idea was to develop a technology that would significantly reduce the trauma and the time for the procedures for kids, that this technology would then enable these procedures to be done safely and really with a high degree of tolerability by the children in the office. So how, is that, how does it achieve that? Well, it really came down to the development of the hummingbird. With standard instruments, I mean, it's still, a, it's a very short procedure. Uh, the OR times <clears throat> that are blocked, uh, they're done, you know, predominantly in hospital outpatient departments, but some, some ASCs, they'll block time anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. You know, the amount of, you know, surgical time might only be five to seven minutes. But it involves a lot of passes, what we call surgical passes with instruments, standard stainless steel instruments that haven't changed ever. And really what it comes down to is when they place the tube itself after making an incision, they can only get a corner of the flange of the tube into the incision. And then because of the angle that they're working in through a speculum and through the angle of the child's uh, ear canal. And so then they have to take a pick and they have to poke and poke on that flange to try to get the, the, the flange behind the eardrum. And the manipulation of the tube in a fresh incision is, is a very unpleasant sensation. And so the idea of the hummingbird was to come up with a way to do this in a single surgical pass that would literally eliminate that manipulation of the tube. And, that, and that's what we've been able to do uh, it delivers, you know, it, the amount of time it takes to actually deliver the tube is, is, is a few seconds. That's really it. So is this still a procedure that's done in the hospital? This is now done in a doctor's office. This is done in the office. Now, we had originally started off envisioning going right to the office. Um, FDA strongly encouraged us to, uh, instead of jumping right to the office, to try to do conscious sedation first. So conscious sedation is, in theory, would be, you know, better than general anesthetic. The kids are never given general anesthetic. And, and FDA had been concerned for years about the risk of general anesthetic in children. And in fact, at the end of 2016, issued a formal safety alert that, that the use of long durations or multiple exposures uh, of general anesthetic in children has a risk for long-term neurocognitive issues. So they've been examining this for a long time. But they were also nervous. This is, what, this is one of the challenges of pediatric devices, right? You know, people want pediatric devices, but there's always a tendency to be more conservative because you're dealing with kids. So FDA encouraged us to start off on conscious sedation first with general anesthetic as a backup. So we did that first and uh, got a clearance for that back in 2015 but the reality is, is it just isn't a big enough improvement for the market. The, the place that everybody wanted to be and where the market is going, not only in other surgical specialties, but in ENT, is whenever possible to bring procedures from the operating room to the office, because the office is by far the lowest cost point of service and by far the most convenient. And for kids, it's even more important. You, you, you eliminate the risk of general, 
Um, you have far more convenience for the parents, but the parents can be there with the child during the procedure, which is really important when you're dealing with really young children. You know, these kids can sense the comfort of mom being there right there with them. Nobody's gowned up. There's no bright lights above them. There's no scary people. And it makes a huge difference. So we needed to get to the office. And the recent clearance that we had was a clearance in the office. So it's really the fourth 510K clearance that we've had on this on the Hummingbird, but by far the most important. So, and, and you're right, I, my, my younger son has had uh, both tubes and also had his adenoids and tonsils up. And it's, uh, it's a stressful time when you're, you have to put your kid, you to hand your child over to someone else and say, I'll meet you when you're done on the other side. It's, uh, it's not a good feeling. Very difficult for parents when, you know, a lot of times parents are there during the general anesthetic mask induction. You know how kids are put down for general and, you know, you know, the kids struggle with a the mask, they fight it, you know, they're thrashing around and, you know, they're holding it down uh, until they finally go under and it, it's not pleasant and it's really distressing for parents to watch that. Do you have uh, reimbursement for this? The reason we decided to do this is because we are very confident of the reimbursement scenario. Uh, ear tubes, as you might expect, are covered by all payers. And in fact, there are codes already in place, codes and payment for ear tube procedures. There is a code in place for doing it in the operating room under general, which is the one that is used you know, for almost all kids today. And then there's also a code in place uh, for doing it in the office with only local anesthesia. And that's the one that we're gonna use going forward. Now that was designed for adults. There's payment already. What we're working with the payers on is payment augmentation. Um, so, you know, we don't have to have a new code. Payment is already there, but we're working with the payers on, on providing a, on a, an augmentation of the current payment, which was designed for adults. With kids, you need this extra technology and you need some extra resources when you're, when you're doing it with kids compared to adults. You're gonna have a couple of nurses in there. You're gonna have a little more time in scheduling because it's a child. You've gotta give them a little bit more attention in TLC. And with that uh, additional time and the cost of the technology to enable us for most ENT surgeons, you know, there needs to be an augmentation of the payment. However, the benefit, the financial benefit for the, for the payers and the incentive is very high because, you know, for example, for every child that they augment that payment, even after augmenting the payment, they will save on, on average uh, for, for private payers across the United States, uh, $3,000 to $3,500 per case because they've been able to get the child from the highest cost point of service to the lowest cost point of service. So we're, we're very bullish on our ability to work with the payers. It's, it's not a story you get to go to the payers too often with. You know, we've got, you know, we have a, a risk factor for young children. We know where the parents want to be and we're able to significantly save money for all, all stakeholders. So this is an interesting time to, to secure this, uh, this, approval. I mean, we're in a pandemic. It's affected companies in so many different ways. And I, and I can't imagine how challenging it will be to roll this out without a clinical meeting to go to, without being able to get it in front of doctors. How has the pandemic impacted Perceptus? It, it, it's a great question. Like everybody, we were very worried about this. We were uh, in the final stages of completing our clinical study 
uh, and getting ready to submit the data when, when the pandemic had started. And as with most of the clinical studies in the United States, the IRBs immediately paused enrollment. Um, it was just kind of a across the board action that was taken as much, you know, for the fact that the study coordinators weren't even gonna be in the office here trying to protect people have less interactions. However, uh, as, as, as our investigators thought about it, ORs were on a moratorium, okay? They were being saved for COVID patients and the most, and the most severe cases. And uh, our investigators went to their IRBs and said, you know, if we're, this is the one study we need to have available because we can actually treat the children in the office with less risk of COVID transmission away from the hospitals and the ASCs. And of course, the parents that then and now don't want to bring their kids into an OR environment uh, because of COVID, and those ORs are significantly limited. So in parallel with that, uh, we had a discussion with the FDA. And the FDA at that point uh, had the same concerns. And in fact, they did something that is really unusual. The FDA used their enforcement discretion to say, we need to have this option available for children's ear tube procedures. And, and they told us that, number one, don't do any more clinical data. Submit everything you have right now. We don't want to wait on your 510K clearance, okay? Number two, while it's under review, they said, we are going to use our enforcement discretion to consider the clinical sites that you're using as literally commercial sites. So that if that is needed to get around any IRB pauses, you have that, that tool at your disposal, which is really almost unprecedented. So our, our plaudits to the FDA uh, for being able to do that. And then third, when they did the review, they expedited it. Uh, we ended up having the review completed in 56 days, even though FDA and the ENT division was up to their ears uh, in dealing with respiratory products because the ENT division is also reviewing the ventilators. And even with that, uh, FDA got this done in 56 days because of what they considered the criticality of an office location for ear tube procedures for children during the COVID pandemic. And how about the sales aspect? Last question, how are you gonna roll this out? Well, in a way we're not gonna really get hurt by this because you know we had never planned to do a, a huge full-scale launch, you know, like you would with a, you know, we're not venture backed. This has all been done with, with angels who have had great belief and vision of what we're doing. And our idea was to simply do a pilot. So, you know, we have now hired a, a chief commercial officer. Our goal is to do a pilot, very focused in a couple of select markets. And we're gonna start off with our, with our current clinical sites. And because those sites are already trained, um, you know, all we've gotta do is work to transition those clinical sites, you know, to commercial sites with the help of our payers. And even though we'll probably look at adding a couple of new sites, because we're doing this in the office instead of the OR, we have a lot more latitude here in our ability to train uh, the surgeons and meet with um, surgeons and their staff, even during the COVID crisis. Uh, because the offices are, are certainly opening up at a, at a higher level and at a, at a higher rate than, than what we're seeing with the OR. So we've been, fortunate with COVID that it has not only not hurt us, it's probably helped us. And, and we believe that the same incentive FDA had 
to expedite this because of COVID, we think there's a very good, a strong likelihood that the payers are looking at it the same way as FDA. This is an opportunity that everybody needs to grasp. And, you know, I, we think that there's a good chance that the payers are going to expedite their decisions on this. That's the same dynamic as, as telehealth and everything else they had been slow to pay for before, but now they're all for it. So You're exactly right. Uh, decisions during times of stress like this, um, in a good way, can be made much quicker uh, than they can in, in normal times. And, and, you know, we're hopeful that that's going to be the same way uh, for our payer augmentation. Uh, we have some other options for the sites, but, you know, it's really about the payers uh, recognizing the value of this, the reduction of risk. And, you know, the one final thing that we have in our, in our, in our back pocket is uh, last year, the society, uh, for the, the primary society, the American Academy of Otolaryngology, uh, even in advance of our, our clearance, issued a formal position statement in favor of in-office tubes for kids. So the society has already come out in favor. So you've got the clearance, you've got the society support, you've got the clinical data, you have the value proposition for everybody where you're reducing risk and reducing costs. So it's a good position to be right now. And we feel like we're doing something really important for children and their parents. Excellent. Well, congratulations. And, and as a parent, uh, or a parent who's gone through it, I'm, I'm happy that future parents may not have to go through that, that same experience. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Steve. Thank you, Tom. And then finally, we're going to speak with, or I interviewed uh, Heidi Dose, who I'm going to be talking to on our Device Talks Tuesday. You've actually seen her speak at uh, some of our Device Talks meetings? You know, in the past, yeah. And I mean, she's got a great perspective, too, uh, because, I mean, she'll, she's very open about it. She's, you know, had, um, you know, um, implantable heart devices much of her much of her life. So, I mean, she's got the perspective of somebody who's really trying to innovate, but she's also got a perspective of someone who needs, needs the technology. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really, really powerful perspective. Absolutely. And she is making the point that, look, we are finally at a point where we have all the equipment we need to, uh, to collect all the data we need. It's just a matter of understanding that data and for med tech companies and med tech makers and startups to understand how to riddle utilize that data. So we'll be talking about that on Tuesday. She and I will be doing sort of a, a fireside chat conversation. And uh, yeah, that'll be really interesting. And it's always good to hear what they're thinking about the space over at Google. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I know it's this all powerful voice. You just hear Google. Like, what does that actually mean for MedTech? So we'll find out more about that on Tuesday. And folks will have the opportunity to ask their own questions. So uh, I hope we have a lot of our listeners uh, joining us. They can go to Device Talks dot com to register for that. Well, Heidi Dose, welcome to the podcast. Tom, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm excited about our conversation on Tuesday. You'll be our guest on Device Talks Tuesdays, where you'll be talking about the, the, the name of the topic talk is improving medtech's bedside manner. Yes. And, and it was a from a conversation that you and I had a bit ago, which I just found fascinating about ways to make our medtech technology work better. I don't want to give away too much because I really hope people will join us on Tuesday, but I just wanted to sort of give a little bit of a primer on, on what we'll be talking about and also who you are. Can you give us a, a brief background on how you came to work at Google as senior program manager and how you became involved in MedTech? Sure. Uh, I, I definitely came to Google and to MedTech in a very roundabout way. Um, my background was actually in the sports industry and as an athlete, 
which as someone who has lived a life with heart issues and implanted de devices, it was certainly a journey. And as a professional windsurfer, I realized my career path was going to look like real estate agent, cocktail waitress, and or retail store manager. So I started a, a internet company back in 1993. So uh, yes, back when the internet was considered a fad and no one was going to use it. Um, I, can I, say, I can say with some certainty that I think you're the only professional windsurfer I have ever met in my life. <laughs> yeah, and see what it, you know, there, <laughs> it turned out. So it was a good call to kind of jump into this tech stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my, my goal was to, to have a job that would allow me to continue to live in really awesome quality of life communities. Um, and, and so starting an internet company and believing in the technology led to... Uh, my first paying customer was Bank of America, and I was responsible, the first you know, web, webmaster for www.bankamerica.com in 1995. Wow. So my background was actually as a technologist and in engineering. Um, I ended up at Google about eight years ago, and it was my personal journey as a heart patient, and at the age of you know 19, having an experimental surgery for an AV ablation to have my first pacemaker put in and deciding that I didn't want to be a victim of heart disease. Instead, I wanted to go back to being a competitive athlete. And what does that look like to become a you know, competitive cyclist in 2010 after open heart surgery? And next thing you know, it's all about the access to the data, the wearables, the implantables, and the, the being able to communicate with my cardiologists and physicians mm -hmm. about my goals and what's going on and me feeling safe enough to pursue them. That's if I ask the questions I want to ask, this will quickly be a 30 minute interview. So we'll save it for, <laughs> for device talks Tuesdays. But so tell us a bit then how you turn that into what you're doing at Google and tell us a bit about what, what you are responsible for at Google. Sure. I, so as I mentioned, I, I joined Google back in 2012. And it was as a core infrastructure engineering person, um, but we have 20% projects at Google, which means if you're, if you're passionate about something, you can reach out, meet people. And I started pinging everyone at Google at the time that might be interested in healthcare or was working on data in healthcare. And... After you ping enough people, you get to work on and collaborate on some projects. And then uh, the cloud organization was spinning up and I convinced them that healthcare was going to be a space we should focus on. Um, six years ago, the wow. presence at Hims was me and my business cards. And uh, you know, fast forward to the amazing organization that we have today in the in cloud platform, you know, Google Cloud Platform has an entire healthcare life sciences vertical within that. And as the senior program manager working within the healthcare life sciences vertical, I get to kind of help to focus on what, how do we become the infrastructure to support mm -hmm. digital health transformation. So this idea of you know, my personal dream of how do we unify all these different data sources so I can have insights to know that I'm safe. And as an athlete, my performance is improving. I get to now work with the teams to make sure that we can make that available in the industry. 
Um, today, I'm responsible for working on the partnership that Google has with Mayo Clinic and focused on some of their digital transformation products and, and projects. That's amazing. And, and, and we hear about Google's interest in healthcare and medtech, and it's, it sounds so impressive because it's such a, a, a well, the, the well, most well-known organization, I think probably business in the world. But what does that mean for medtechers? To, 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 what is Google's actual interest in working with, with medtech companies and providers? Or what, what, what will this intersection look like, do you think, in three or four years? Or, or more specifically, if I can actually get a question out of my mouth. If I'm a medtech executive and I hear this, what can Google do for me? Well, so it's, it's also good to understand that like many of your med tech companies, they're large companies and there are different organizations focused on different um, components of the broader, you know, what is healthcare, what is med tech, what is digital health. So within the cloud organization, what Google offers is the healthcare optimized platform for med tech and connected devices to be able to build out their next generation solutions of, you know, when I talk with med tech companies, they're looking at, they know they collect data, they know they have all this information, they know they have customers, and those customers are both our, our researchers, their clinicians, and their patients. And those patients, those, those stakeholders want access to the data. So Google, we are a data company first. We've been able to ingest all the world's information from the internet, and we can make that information useful, findable and useful to everyone. So think about taking the power of what Google has done with the world's information and applying that specifically to healthcare in a healthcare compliant and optimized way and then specifically for a med tech company, allowing them to be able to get the power of Google instead of building out their own data centers, um, have that power, be able to use the off the shelf algorithms for AI and machine learning and make the data that they already have, but they haven't been able to make useful. Now they can start to ingest that data, make it interoperable with other data sets and then mm -hmm. apply the algorithms to now have those aha moments. And I think that's the part that's really going to become powerful and, and be of importance to the med tech companies. Um, within other areas of, of Google, we have the Google Health Organization and they focus on kind of more of the engagement layer. They're working on interesting things, you know, where you've seen um, the ability to, through images, um, as well as, if not better than uh, a cancer radiologist being able to identify cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so again, not rep ever replacing the physician or the technician, but enhancing and making their time more valuable by eliminating maybe the, the false positives so they can focus on, with their energy on where it's needed. Um, there's also the Verily organization, which is kind of a, a Google bet or an alphabet mm -hmm. bet. <laughs> and that's where the, the collaborations with companies that are, you know, looking at how do they develop like these next generation um, therapies and procedure type things. Excellent. Well, there's, there's so much to talk about and it's such a, an important area. I know med tech people 
already we're looking at, at connecting their devices and, and the pandemic has just sort of made that paramount. So I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, this will be an important conversation. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to having a longer interview with, with you on Tuesday. I know you're going to bring some great, a uh, great presentation as well. So uh, I'm really, really looking forward to the talk. Thanks for uh, joining us on Tuesday and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to our, our next discussion. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Chris Newmarker, how can folks track you down on social media? Hey, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Twitter at Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. Never used that phrase before. And, uh, you know, you can reach me too, like C Newmarker at uh, WTWHmedia.com. Always happy to talk with people. Awesome. And I am also on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm also on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And the email is very similar, except it's T Salemi at WTWHmedia.com. Folks would do us the favor of sharing this podcast episode on your social media channels. We'd love to be part of those conversations. So please make sure you tag us. And of course, do subscribe and do give us a ranking on iTunes. It really does help us help others find us and help others listen to the podcast. And we'd love to have as many people listening as possible. All right. And next week is July 3rd. I know many of us will be observing Independence Day. We will be putting out a podcast. Our plan is to put one out on that Friday. So uh, we hope you enjoy that conversation and then we'll keep our regular schedule going in July. We're not going away. We'll be around. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks a lot. Stay healthy.